please turn in your Bibles now to the book of Judges. Uh, we're on chapter 14 today. This is page 294 if you're using the Pew Bible. And I'll be reading out of the New King James Version, which is the same translation as you have there in the Pew. Uh, last time we began the story of Samson, probably the most uh, well-known of all the judges, the most famous, probably also the most complicated of all the judges. Um, children, I'm wondering if you can remind me, I know it's been a week because I was out of town, uh, what did we learn about Samson in chapter 13 when we were introduced to Samson? And any of you remember anything we know about Samson? Yes, go ahead, Kira. Okay, so yeah, his family was, uh, yeah, she said a non-believing family, a family that, that was certainly not exactly where they needed to be in life. Uh, what else about their family? Anybody else remember? Oh, no, you guys, you never let me down. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, he was a Nazarite. He was committed to serving God throughout his life. God put that on them, uh, that he would raise, uh, that they would raise Samson as a devoted servant of God. And uh, what else? You know, it was miraculous, right? Because Samson, uh, Samson's parents couldn't have children. Uh, yeah, what were you going to say? Good. So an angel came and told them about this miraculous birth that was going to happen. So expectations are high for Samson. And now we read of Samson sort of coming on the scene and starting his, uh, his public ministry. Uh, so let's give attention and we'll look at uh, Judges chapter 14. Now Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. So he went up and told his father and mother, saying, I've seen a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me as wife. Then his father and mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your brethren or among all my people that you must go to get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she pleases me well. But his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord, that he was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines. For at that time, the Philistines had dominion over Israel. So Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother and came to the vineyards of Timnah. Now, to his surprise, a young lion came roaring against him, and the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and he tore the lion apart as one would have torn apart a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she pleased Samson well. After some time, when he returned to get her, he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, a swarm of bees and honey were in the carcass of the lion. He took some of it in his hands and went along eating. When he came to his father and mother, he gave some to them. And they also ate, but he did not tell them that he had taken the honey out of the carcass of the lion. So his father went down to the woman, and Samson gave a feast there, for young men used to do so. And it happened when they saw him that they brought 30 companions to be with him. Then Samson said to them, let me pose a riddle to you. If you can correctly solve and explain it to me within the seven days of the feast, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing. But if you cannot explain it to me, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing. And they said to him, pose your riddle that we may hear it. 
So he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. Now, for three days, they could not explain the riddle. But it came to pass on the seventh day that they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband that he may explain the riddle to us, or else we will burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us in order to take what is ours? Is that not so? Then Samson's wife wept on him and said, you only hate me. You do not love me. You have posed a riddle to the sons of my people, but you have not explained it to me. And he said to her, look, I have not explained it to my father or mother. So should I explain it to you? Now she had wept on him the seven days while their feast lasted. And it happened on the seventh day that he told her because she pressed him so much. Then she explained the riddle to the sons of her people. So the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, what is sweeter than honey and what is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. Then the spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily and he went down to Ashkelon and killed 30 of their men, took their apparel and gave the changes of clothing to those who had explained the riddle. So his anger was aroused, and he went back to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. And there will end the reading of God's word. May God bless it to us as we seek to understand and apply this word. I don't know if you saw, there was a bit of a tragic story over the summer about two sisters, two grown women in their 40s, And uh, one of them had a 14-year-old son. And the three of them uh, decided that they were so fed up with all all the uh, division and contention in society uh, that they were just going to get away from it all. And they were going to live off the grid. And so they went uh, into a remote area in Colorado. And uh, their intention was they're just going to live off the land. Well, in July of this year, when the snows melted and hikers began going back through that area, uh, they found three dead bodies uh, because those people died of malnutrition. And uh, this is quite a a tragedy from the standpoint of the other family members who had actually begged with them not to do this. Um, But sometimes people feel that way. I just, you know, I just, I have to go do my own thing. I have to get away from it. You may find that you yourself are sometimes tempted. You'd like to just jump in the car and drive away because can I get away from all this stuff I'm dealing with? And uh, there, there's, a, there's a pull uh, for us to try to avoid what it is that God is calling us to do. But running away from God's call on your life, running away from God's will for you never works well. It never works well. And this passage shows us this truth. This is the start of the public ministry of Samson. He is the God-ordained deliverer of his people. And we saw that in chapter 13, uh, an angelic messenger. We said that messenger was actually the angel of the Lord, the second person in the Trinity. Jesus himself came to announce his birth and to give him an assignment, which was that he would uh, overthrow the Philistines and free his people. But what we see here is not him embracing that job, but him avoiding it, ignoring it, and trying to do his own thing. And uh, God doesn't let that stand. And that's actually the encouragement of this passage. It's an encouragement for you and me, because we're not always following in God's will like we should be. 
And oftentimes we ignore uh, what God is telling us to do. But what we see here is that God is absolutely committed uh, to loving his people and to frustrating our plans to do it our way in order to call us back and to use us for his good purposes. And so as we look at the passage, that's the main point that I want us to see this morning, that we ought to give thanks that God loves you enough to frustrate your efforts to avoid his calling for your life. And children, if you might, you want to draw a picture, draw a picture of Samson and this, uh, this uh, lion, or maybe the lion and the honey, and listen for what that means and uh, what we can learn from it. There is an outline in the bulletin, and there's also some cross-references I'll be referring to that are on the back of the bulletin. Uh, the first thing I want us to notice is that it is tempting to think that you can simply ignore God's calling for you. We see this in verses 1 to 4. So in verse 1, we're told that Samson goes down to Timnah. Uh, so Timnah is, uh, so, so Samson, if you remember from last time, uh, is from Zorah. It's, uh, it's in the, the tribe of Dan, a very small area near Judah. It's in central Palestine, uh, so um, just a, about 15 miles uh, west of Jerusalem. And so he's going down to Zorah, this is about, or to Timnah, which is about four miles away. And so uh, he's right in the middle of the promised land. And one thing to note here is that uh, this is part of the territory that God had given the Israelites, but this is, the Philistines are all living there now. And uh, so the, the Israelites have become so enmeshed with the Philistines uh, that their, their, their uh, dwellings are all overlapping with each other. So the text tells us he finds a daughter of the Philistines that he's attracted to. So he goes to his parents and he tells them in the verse 2, uh, that he's seen a woman that he wants, and he says, get, get her for me as my wife. <clears throat> so one of the things that this shows about Samson right off the bat is, although his calling is to deliver the Israelites from the Philistines, he is going to unite himself with the Philistines by marrying a Philistine woman. And this is, uh, 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 this is uh, uh, alerting us to the fact that Samson's not quite on point at this point in his life. Uh, Barry Webb, and this is one of the, the cross-references that's in your bulletin, says, Samson seems to have no stomach for fighting the Philistines. In fact, he rather likes them, especially their women. He never wanted to fight them in the first place. His idea was to get along with them. And in that way, Samson is actually a perfect representative for the people of God at this time. Because we said earlier, whereas all these other cycles, when they get oppressed by a foreign invader, they would cry out for help. And in this case, they never cry out for help. They just decide, let's roll with this. We can live with this. We can live with serving the Philistines. We'll make it work. And so Samson is a perfect representative of the people. Tim Keller says, Samson's a leader who reflects Israel's real spiritual state rather than God's ideal for his people. Now, the scripture is very clear that they were not to marry uh, the pagans around them. It's strictly forbidden in the Old Testament. It's, it's forbidden in the New Testament. I put one example in your outline, 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 and 15. And there Paul writes, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? 
And there's a lot of applications to this, but particularly marriage, which is the closest relationship, the closest human relationship. Uh, God's saying you should not marry an unbeliever. And here's Samson. This is his first thing he's doing on the public stage is seeking to marry an unbeliever. The second thing he does, right, is the way he responds to his parents. So verse 3, his father and mother said to him, you know, isn't there a woman around here? Can't you marry another Israelite? And uh, why do you have to go get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? So children, here's the second thing Samson did wrong. Uh, He didn't listen to his parents. His parents were right. And you need to realize God has given you your parents as a gift to help to guide you and direct you. And uh, that was true for Samson as well. But he doesn't listen to his parents at all. And uh, in fact, it's really highlighted in the text because he says... Um, he says to his father, get, get her for me, for she pleases me well. And in the original language, and if you have the ESV translation, it translates this a little better. He, he literally says, she is right in my eyes. That is such a significant phrase in this book because the whole problem with the people is that everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes, not what is right in God's eyes. <clears throat> I put one example, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, in your outline from Judges 21, verse 25. This is the last verse of the whole book. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so this is hearkening to that idea. Samson, as the final judge, is presented to us in stark contrast to the first judge. I'm not going to quiz you kids. I know you could tell me the first judge was Othniel. But what's really fascinating is that Othniel uh, accepts the challenge of Caleb to go up and take the city and then is promised Caleb's daughter, this wonderful, godly, um, strong woman to be his wife. So you have in the first judge, a judge fighting like he's supposed to so that he can win a godly woman for his bride. You have Samson not fighting like he's supposed to and marrying one of the pagans that he's supposed to be fighting against. And that is meant to contrast to us the the fall of the people uh, during this time. I noticed the other day I was calling my dog uh, to put him uh, to bed at night. And my dog, if I call my dog and it's around dinner time, that dog is there. Or if the dog thinks I'm going to go out and play fetch with him, he's there. But I called him to go to bed. I was going to put him up. And he just looked at the wall and didn't move. And actually was pretending that he didn't hear me. And I was like from here to the middle of the sanctuary. I mean, I knew he heard me. And he would just kind of look by and then just look over at the wall. And it was as if he thought if he just did that long enough, I would go away. I I would leave him alone. And sadly, this text reminds us that sometimes we act like that with God. We we know God has something he wants us to do. And we're off looking at the wall like, "I I don't hear anything. I don't know what you're talking about. And uh, this is exactly what Samson was doing. He's not the first one. We saw Gideon struggle with this a little bit. 
You see in your Bible, Moses struggled with this. Moses just flat out saying, no, I can't do it. You've got the wrong guy. But God does not just give up and go away just because you are ignoring him. This is a challenge. It's tempting to think you can simply ignore God's calling. It doesn't work like that. Secondly, we see here that God's call on your life is clear enough that you can't claim ignorance. So uh, looking at verses 5 to 9... Um, we see a really fascinating thing happen. I think everybody reads this story. Kids know the story. It's clear enough what's going on, but it makes no sense to us what's significant about it. What is going on? And I think what we have to see is that this whole, this whole segment is a series of riddles. And the first riddle is actually told by God in, in the events that happen. And if we interpret it properly, we understand the message. So verses 5 and 6, he's walking down to Tim. Apparently he's let his parents go on ahead to negotiate this marriage. And as he's traveling along, it says a young lion comes out roaring against him. And verse 6 tells us the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him and he tore the lion apart as one would have torn apart a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand. So this perhaps is the first time that this supernatural strength has come on him. And, and God is showing him the power and what he's capable of as he rips apart a young lion who's attacking him in full fury and full force. Now, the image of the young goat, it's not as if people are walking around tearing goats in pieces. This is, this is in the pot of stew after the meat's been cooked and you're pulling it off the bone. This is your pulled pork. This is, this is uh, just melt-off-the-bone type of meat that's been cooked. That's what it's comparing it to. And, and so Samson just destroys the lion, just obliterates it in a way that's clear. It's not just his skill. It's not just his strength. It's something supernatural that the Lord has done for him and has uh, revealed to him his strength. And I think this is helpful for us. We, I'm sure you all have a picture of Samson in your mind, this wild guy with long hair who looks like a John Cena kind of a guy, you know, massive. And I, I don't think that's necessarily what's going on. I don't think it's here's a human being that has tremendous human strength. It's that here's an ordinary human being that's being given supernatural strength to be used for God. And so what is God showing him in him killing this lion? Here's your enemy. The lion symbolizes. Here's the power you have. Here's your ability to do what I want you to do, which is free the people from the Philistines. So God is trying to show Samson what he wants him to do. But we see uh, this, this riddle then that God uh, developed. So if you look in verses 7 and following. Uh, then he went down, so he comes again uh, to meet with the woman. And after some time, uh, he comes aside to see, wonder what happened to the carcass of the lion. And behold, a swarm of bees and honey were in the carcass of the lion. Okay, so we read that and we think, oh, well, I guess that's the kind of a normal thing you'd see. And, and it's interesting to see the commentators try to argue that, well, in a dry climate and if you created this or that, it's possible you could get honeybees in a carcass. The whole point is that bees do not go to dead animals. That's not where you find bees. 
Um, we had in, in our department this summer, uh, we have what's called a corpse plant in the greenhouse over there. Uh, it, it, it takes like seven years or so before it blooms once, and then it only blooms every few years. It's the single largest flower of any plant, and they normally live in the rainforest. And when it shoots up, it can be 10 feet high, and the, and the petals fall out, and it smells like a dead animal. That's why it's called a corpse plant. And they've chemically analyzed the different smells. It's got the chemicals of like garlic, Limburger cheese, sweaty socks, dead, dead fish. I mean, literally, that's what's in it. And there are no bees anywhere around that. That's not where bees go, right? right? This is where flies go, certain kinds of beetles go. It's trying to attract decomposers who like that smell. So, so this is a sign. When he sees the bees and the honey in the dead animal, it's meant to be a message to him, a sign to him. And part of this comes from understanding the word that's translated in my translation, swarm, a swarm of bees. The word is actually a Hebrew word that means congregation or assembly. Most often where it's not a word that's used for insects. It's a word that's used for the people of God. And so the, the, the picture is one of here we have the dead carcass of your enemies, the Philistines, with the people, the congregation, as a swarm of bees thriving in the midst of it. Hello, Samson, wake up. Get the point. This is what you're here for, is to deliver these people that they may thrive and overthrow their enemies. I think it's easy for us sometimes to act like we just have no idea what God wants from us. Now, that may be true in the specifics. You know, should I take this job? Should I take that job? There are a lot of questions we have. But there are many, many things we know about what God's will is for us from his word. We know he wants us to be content in all circumstances. We know he wants us to trust him and not to worry. We know he wants us to love him more than the world. We know he wants us to keep his commandments. He, we know he wants us to love our neighbor as ourself. He know, we know he wants us to provide for our loved ones and to serve him through the church. And he gives us different opportunities and encouragements to sort of guide us along the way, he opens doors for us. We know a lot more than we think we know. And here, what Samson is trying to ignore is what we read about in James chapter 4, verse 4. And there James called the people adulterers and adulteresses. Now, it's spiritual adultery. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And just as we read in that passage in James, as we humbly seek God and his will, right, God will bring joy and blessing and guidance into our lives. But we cannot claim ignorance and Samson here is acting as if he has no idea what it is he's supposed to do. He's trying to join the people that God wants him to defeat. So God's call on your life is clear enough that you and I cannot claim ignorance of it. Thirdly, we see here also that ignoring God's call will bring pain to you and to others in verses 10 to 18. So although God provides this miraculous sign, he, he kills the lion, he sees the honey in the lion, he goes down to the wedding determined to mix with the Philistines. And in verse 10, we're told that 
uh, Samson gave a feast there. This is interesting because it's not just that he's participating. He is, the, he is giving this party. This is his feast. Uh, so he is hosting these Philistines, and this is the party. And verse 10 says, for the young men used to do so. Now, what's interesting is that the young Philistine men used to do so, not the young Hebrew men. And uh, historians find this passage fascinating. Because the Philistines were actually a people who had come from the Greek islands, had tried to invade Egypt and been rebuffed, and then had settled there along the Mediterranean seas. So they're like the Israelites. They're not really from Canaan. They've come there, and their practices are different, and their wedding practices are different. And everything that's described here is, is, is consistent with what the historians know about ancient Greek weddings, but it's not what happens at a Hebrew wedding. And so the point is, Samson here is going full-on Philistine. As he hosts this wedding, as he has his, uh, his compadres come in, his companions, and uh, as he, as he is, becomes the master of the feast. Again, it looks a lot like he's seeking integration, not overthrow of these people. Now, I didn't say much about it before, but just a note, right? When he went in and grabbed the honey out of the lion. He made himself ceremonially unclean for a Hebrew. He's eating out of a dead body. And that was part of his Nazarite commitment, that he would not be unclean, that he would not be exposed to a dead body. So by all rights, he should have gone to the tabernacle, to find the tabernacle, to offer the sacrifice, to shave his hair, and to start the whole thing all over again. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't even tell his parents. He gives the honey to his parents. He makes them unclean. He really isn't very concerned about serving the Lord and doing what God has called him to do at this point in his life anyway. So what does he do? Verse 12, he doesn't heed the message of the honey and the lion. He uses it. So he poses a a riddle to them, and this would have been standard practice in these weddings. If you can correctly solve it, he, uh, he, he, make, he spices it up by making it worth something. Uh, he's, he's wagering uh, linen undergarments and then uh, dress clothes to go over top, 30 sets, which would have been quite expensive. And so he gives them this riddle. And this would have been totally common to be done in these weddings. Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. So you see the paradox, right? Eaters uh, do not... Uh, present themselves as food. And, and strong eaters are not typically sweet either. Uh, so he has the perfect paradox, right? Because he's actually seen this thing. And he can take them down the road and show them this thing to prove that he, it's a real thing. But there's no way they're going to be able to solve his riddle. So it, it looks like it's, it's going to work. But, um, but now God is going to do something. Because while Samson's trying to fit in with them, God is going to begin to show Samson what these people are really like. And so you see what they do. Uh, They go to Samson's wife and they say, find out the answer to the riddle or we will burn your house down. And right away you realize these these are bad people. 
we, we can say that with, with some confidence. That, you know, riddles at the wedding, that's normal. You win some, you lose some, that's normal. He, he picked a good paradox, that, that's, a, that's too bad, you know, he won. Uh, there's no point in there where we're setting people on fire because we don't win. But that's what they're doing. That's what they're threatening to do. So then Samson's wife uh, turns the table. She's, she's whining, she's complaining, she's saying, you don't really love me until she just uh, drags on him for uh, the whole week of the wedding until he finally uh, tells them the answer. And so, of course, this is a a foreshadowing, right, of the the great undoing of Samson. And so then they come at the end of the feast with an answer uh, to his riddle. And so they give another riddle as the answer. And they say, what is sweeter than honey what is stronger than a lion? Okay, so we, we solved your riddle, lion and honey, but do you see how they've actually posed a new riddle, which would have been common in that culture. What is sweeter than honey and stronger uh, than a lion, which in particular has bested you, Samson? And some commentators think then the answer is love or the allure of an attractive woman that would be the answer that Samson uh, they're in a sense mocking Samson back this is your weakness this is the thing that's stronger than you well then he answers again and it's sort of a riddle Uh, if you had not plowed with my heifer you would have not solved my riddle that one's pretty straightforward to us right so uh, my you use my wife uh, to sort of plow all over me, you know, harassing me for the answer. Uh, and that's how you found it out. You never would have found out. You cheated. Uh, but what he's learned, this is just the beginning of the process, right? He, he's starting to learn who he's dealing with here. And, and, and this is what's going on. Samson's ignoring God's call. He's trying to do what's right in his own eyes. And that's bringing pain into his life. It's bringing pain into his pagan wife's life. It's bringing pain into her family's life. It's bringing pain into his family's life. It's bringing pain all the way around. And this is not unique to Samson. This is what will happen to you and to me if we refuse to listen to what God wants us to do. And we're going to see this is ultimately gracious. But God doesn't just let you go off and destroy yourself. You know, I I know Christians make make one snap decision after another, and suddenly you're asking yourself, like, how did I get here? I don't even know what I'm doing here at this point in my life. And and so when when we take off pursuing our own will instead of the Lord's will, so often it brings pain. Because we can't get away from God's desires for us. But fourthly, we see here just what I was saying, that God loves you enough to frustrate your efforts to avoid your calling. So now in verse 19, the spirit of the Lord comes on him again. And he goes down to Ascalon. Ascalon's on the Mediterranean Sea. It's about 25 miles away. And he kills 30 of their men and takes their apparel and gives it to those men that he had lost the riddle to. And some of the commentators just think, that, well, this is terrible. Samson's just a, 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 a guy seeking revenge. He's out of control. This isn't what he should be doing. But that's not the way the text treats this. 
This is the spirit of God coming upon him, helping him to do what he was actually supposed to be doing from the beginning. Now, he's, he's not ready to go full on into this conflict. He goes 25 miles away. He goes way away from where he lives. He's not ready to stir up things right around where he lives yet. But this is God starting to wake him up to what he's there for. And we may say, well, all those poor innocent guys with their clothes. No, this is just like the Exodus, right? When, when God is punishing Pharaoh for his disobedience, all these people are caught in the crossfire. And, and, and this is because, again, God is not viewing this as a situation where everybody's innocent. He's viewing it as you've got an invading force that's oppressing your people. And they're too cozy with each other. And this has to be broken up. And this is the start of breaking up this cozy relationship. Samson's not embracing his role, but God is forcing him into it. Uh, quoting here from Lawson Younger, left to himself, Samson would never have become involved in God's or even Israel's agenda. Left to themselves, the Israelites would have been satisfied to continue to coexist with the Philistines, but Yahweh has other plans. And that's what we're seeing. God has other plans. He loves his people enough not to let them get comfortable uh, ignoring his will. So the end of the text, verse 19 and 20, Samson goes back uh, furious and leaves his wife. So the tradition in that culture would have been seven days of a celebration and the wedding's consummated at the seventh day. And he leaves before that happens and his bride is given to the one who is supposed to be his attendant. And so this whole thing uh, has been a mess. God has completely frustrated Samson's plans. Samson ignored his calling. He ignored God's efforts to get his attention. He ignored the Nazarite vow. He sought union instead of conflict with the Philistines. But look at all that God has done. He uses the very thing that Samson is trying to use to do his thing to start a blood feud with the Philistines. And, uh, and th now God is pulling back the curtain and showing Samson who these people are really like. Children, I, I don't know if you've ever had this, felt this pressure to be, um, to be popular with the other kids. And um, boy, that can be powerful. And uh, you're, you're trying to impress uh, the cool kids. You know, you want to be accepted by them. You want to impress them. And uh, you start finding yourself making compromises in, in order to do that. And then maybe God, like, pulls back the curtain and shows you what sort of narcissistic, selfish people these cool kids really are. And you realize, why do, I, why do I want to impress these people? This isn't what I want to do. And God can do this in various ways, very graciously, to redirect us. He loves you enough to pursue you when you're going the wrong way. And this should be an encouragement to us as well as a challenge. So finally, we see here that we need to give thanks that God will accomplish his good purposes even when we are unwilling. So verse 4, which I sort of skipped over before, I know you knew that, is key to understanding what's going on here. His father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord that he was seeking occasion to move against the Philistines. For at that time, the Philistines had dominion over Israel. Now, some commentators, including Matthew Henry, and I love Matthew Henry, 
But they go so far as to say that, no, no, this was all, everything Samson did here was exactly right. He was doing what God told him to do. God told him to do this. And I just don't think that the text really shows that. I think what this is saying isn't that. It's saying that despite the fact that Samson was ignoring what God wanted him to do and that Samson was trying to unite himself to the Philistines, God's purpose prevailed. That God worked over and above that to accomplish his own purpose even through this thing that Samson insisted on doing. And what we're going to see is God's beginning to wake Samson up and that, God, and that Samson will embrace this purpose eventually that he's been given by the Lord. But this is God getting him moving in the right direction. Tim Keller in speaking about this says, the amazing truth is that God works through sinners and through sinful situations. He keeps his promises to bless his people in the dark, dark and disastrous periods of our lives as well as through the times when things are going right. Not even our own sin will stop him from saving us or using us. And Ralph Davis says, neither Samson's foolishness nor his stubbornness is going to prevent Yahweh from accomplishing his design. Yahweh can and will use the sinfulness or stupidity of his servants as the camouflage for bringing his secret will to pass. Now understand, this is not an endorsement for us to ignore God. This is not me saying, hey, don't listen to God, and in the end, God will get his will done anyway, right? It's very painful if you choose to do it that way, and that's what's going on in this, is a lot of suffering is happening because he's not doing it God's way. But that is the sad fact, isn't it? That all too often, we don't listen to God. We ignore his calling for us, and we pursue our own objectives. God wants you to reach out to this person, and there's a fractured relationship, and you just won't do it. God wants you to forgive somebody who's wronged you, and you just won't do it. God wants you to start some new uh, ministry project or, uh, or something else, and we just won't do it. But thank God that our salvation doesn't depend on him. It depends on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we said last time there are many ways that Samson is a type of Christ with his miraculous birth, his, his uh, devotion to God, and his eventual uh, deliverance of the people. But so often you see what's important in the judge and in the type by the contrast. And the contrast between our Lord and Samson is strong. Samson's not the deliverer we need. Jesus Christ is the deliverer we need. And Jesus is the one who came fully embracing God's will for his life in every detail. And how many times does Jesus say, not your will be done, but my will? He says that right when he's going to the cross. He says, I'm here to do the will of my father, not my own will. And because Jesus came as that servant, the deliverer of his people, fully given over to fulfilling God's will throughout his entire life, People like you and me that often fail, we often fail, we can be forgiven and we can be given grace that with his help, we may more and more pursue what he's calling us to do. Our commitment to him is always going to be less than perfect, but Jesus never was. And because of that, we know we can be forgiven and loved by our father. And so give thanks. Give thanks that the Lord loves you enough through Christ that he is going to at times frustrate 
your efforts to pursue your own angle on things. That is such a blessing when he stops you from going in the direction that you want to go when it's away from him. And he brings you back and he uses you for his good purposes. Let's pray and we'll ask him to help us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage of scripture, which we confess is, is one that really makes us scratch our heads. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for helping us to see here uh, your work behind the scenes. It's easy for us to be distracted by what Samson's doing, what the Philistines are doing, what his wife is doing. But Lord, when we look at what you're doing, we can see clearly you are at work behind the scenes to bring about the tension and the conflict that's needed uh, to liberate your people from bondage. And we thank you, Lord, that even in Samson's own life, you have to destroy his plans uh, so that he can see what your plans are and to get on board. And Lord, we confess that sometimes we need to have our own plans destroyed. And we don't like that, that's very painful, but we thank you that you love us enough through Christ uh, that you are willing to do that, to bring us into conformity with your will and to send us in the direction you want us to go. And we pray that for each one of us, you would be at work guiding us and helping us to find joy in our service to you through Christ. For we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. And now we'll uh, sing our praise back to the Lord from Psalm 84, Selection D. We sang the first part of Psalm 84 at the beginning of the service, and now we'll sing the latter part at the end. Uh, one of the things that's really encouraging in this is as the people uh, come into the presence of God, uh, they ask God to hear their prayer, and uh, then they ask the Lord to look on their shield and see the face of his anointed. And it's as if they uh, recognize, they don't want the Lord to look at them. They want the Lord to look at their anointed Savior. Uh, they want the Lord to look at Jesus Christ. And that's our only hope, that we will faithfully serve his will. And not that we'll do it in our own strength, but that God works with us through the Lord Jesus Christ, our perfect substitute. Let's stand and we'll sing our praise to him. <laughs> 